This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. You know, I knew that we weren't allowed to have radios, television, cinema, because Satan was in all of those things. That's what they told us. So I remember the day when my father brought home a television. I remember the day that the radios were installed, you know, like nobody sat down with us and said, hey, you know, we told you that Satan was in the radio and in the television set. Well, we were wrong. So in the logic of my head, my parents had gone to the dark side. Welcome to How To. I'm David Epstein. Have you ever heard the phrase, drinking the Kool-Aid? Maybe you've used it yourself to describe someone who fully and uncritically believes something that you don't. The phrase actually comes from an infamous cult called the People's Temple and its leader, Jim Jones. About 40 years ago, more than 900 members died after Jones coerced them into drinking a grape-flavored beverage laced with poison. They were found simply buried under other bodies. There were larger adults that were grouped together and under their bodies were found the bodies of smaller uh, adults and children. The Jonestown saga is obviously extreme. Most members of cults survive. They even get out in many cases. But what do they do then? Imagine that. Your whole worldview falls apart. You have a family with 12 kids. You were expecting to pop up into heaven this year, you know? <laughs> that was your expectation. It didn't happen. Gosh, hold on. Let me, let, me, let me take a few breaths here. This is Michael from California. I guess for many years now, I've struggled with um, kind of reconciling the fact that I really love and care for my family and having that contrasted with the shame and feeling unsafe with regards to... Um, the fact that they raised us in, a, in an apocalyptic cult. Michael was born in Thailand and along with his 11 brothers and sisters, raised in a religious cult called the Children of God. The group is probably most well known for two things. First, celebrities like Joaquin Phoenix and Rose McGowan. They both grew up in it as children and they've spoken out about their time in that world. And second, allegations of sexual and physical abuse. The Children of God specifically predicted the world would end in 1994. So for Michael, Doomsday defined his childhood. I wasn't going to live past six years old, you know. That was oh, wow. pretty much my formative years was not even thinking about what life would be like after that. Someone's always predicting the end of the world. <laughs> mm -hmm. like that's, that's always the case. But we were reading about how to prepare for the coming, the Antichrist and the, you know, the, mm -hmm. the rains, raining fire and all that stuff and the fissure and the rapture. And we were preparing for that. So I just remember being afraid all the time. How is it that you came to leave the cult? 
I don't think we ever left. It was more of a diffusive process where the leadership faltered, the fellow died. In, I think, 94, it was right after the world was supposed to end. We hopped around from house to house, just kind of surviving. There was no sense of closure. Like, they didn't leave the cult, the cult left them. Michael was a teenager when his family left. He went off to college and then played professional water polo in Europe. That allowed him, as he put it, to run away from his upbringing. Now he's in his 30s and back near his family. And Michael's acutely aware of how much they're all still grappling with the cult's legacy. As one of the middle children, he feels like he should be the family glue. But he hasn't talked to some of his siblings in years, and some of them are really struggling. And as for his parents, Michael's relationship with them is complicated at best. Some would say it's not rational, but love's not rational. You know, you care for people regardless. And I just had this real strong urge to go home and to, you know, be by them. They're getting older. My mother is getting sick. I just wanted to be there for them, I guess, in a way maybe that I wish they were there for our family when they were the caretakers, you know? You know, it's it's almost like, I don't know if it's fair to say, but it's, how do you keep living when when the world doesn't actually end? Totally. Uh, yeah, that's exactly it. It's like the li- life became an afterthought. On today's episode, how to survive and thrive after leaving a cult. Michael rarely talks about this experience. It's hard to find someone who gets it. But we'll bring on an expert who was also raised in a cult and, like Michael, understands the challenge of reintegrating into society. Stay with us. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. This episode is brought to you by Defender. For those who embrace the impossible, the Defender 110 is up for the adventure. This iconic vehicle has been redefined with thoroughly modern design. The exterior is reimagined with compelling proportions and precise detailing, and the interior is built with robust materials and integrity. The Defender capability is legendary, whether you're facing off road challenges or harsh weather conditions. Built for the modern explorer, the Defender 110 lets you go further and do more. And cargo capacity means more room for your gear. To drive the Defender is to explore with greater confidence. Powerful innovations like the intuitive driver display and award-winning infotainment system keep you connected. Innovative camera technologies deliver unobstructed views and effortless maneuvering. Ready for a wide range of adventures, the Defender family features the two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, and the Defender 130, which seats up to eight. A vehicle made to go further, the Defender 110. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. Hello, Slate Podcast listeners. Help us make a better Slate by answering our survey. It'll only take a few minutes, and you can find it at slate.com slash survey. We're back with Michael, our listener who grew up in a cult. 
Michael wishes he could talk to his parents in a way that would help the family process what happened and move forward. I remember asking my father once, I said, so I'll, I'll disclose something to you. Um, of the 12 of us, there's one, two, three, there's four of them who live on the street. And I asked them, I said, hey, like, how much of their problems do you think are caused by the fact that they were raised in a cult? And he didn't have a good answer. He just, it's almost like he didn't think it was a problem. Mm. And I've found one of my sister's ones in LA and just an utter mess. And you know, the problem is that all she talks about is the cult. And if they don't view it as a mistake now, would it be more hurtful to you to leave the question unanswered or are you concerned that that's how they would react and that would be even more difficult to deal with? I think I'm beyond being hurt now. It's not really a question of hurt. It's more, mm-hmm. uh, it's more about hearing something said from someone who you care about. It's not about being sorry or I just want them to admit they were wrong to raise 12 children around an apocalyptic cult full of pedophiles, <laughs> you know? Like, that was wrong. While Michael was sharing his story with us, Rebecca Stott was listening patiently. She's a writer in the UK and author of In the Days of Rain, a memoir about her own family's experience in a cult called the Exclusive Brethren. Michael, um, I just found that very moving because it's so similar and... The way you describe your childhood, the way you describe your confusion, the way you describe the difficulty of speaking. I mean, when when I wrote my book, I was in my early 50s and it felt like all of my life had been preparation for trying to write it, mm. write my father's story as well as my own. Mm. And I found that as the book came to completion and was about to be published... I developed laryngitis and lost my voice for a whole month. So whenever I have an interview like this, I can feel the frog in my throat. It's like there's something still censoring me and that's in my own head. I'm still really surprised by the visceral nature of some of this stuff, you know, of of Mm. my own reluctance to spill the beans. My mother's phrase. Yeah. You know, to spill the beans is to betray the cult, even if we left it, you know? I'm so, I'm, I'm so happy you said that because I'm, I'm shaking right now. Just from, you know, it's, it's, it's that body, that reaction. Mm. Yeah. It's touching to hear that from someone else. Yeah. Rebecca, could you tell us a bit more about the Exclusive Brethren and, and what it was like growing up? Yeah. So really a lot of similarities um, with Michael's cult. We also were taught that the rapture was coming um, and that if we weren't on the right side of the line, we would be left behind to face the tribulations and the tribulations are, you know, I mean, we read the book of Revelations again and again and again and again. Meetings were an hour long. Women weren't allowed to speak. The men had absolute authority in their homes and in the communities. So you lived in constant threat of being excommunicated. They, they called it withdrawn from, but it was basically, you, if you were withdrawn from, from, you were thrown out. You would never see your children again. Mm. Um, so people stayed. Everything was banned. No radio, no television, no holidays, no pets, no wristwatches. So we had no radios, but my father liked to listen to the cricket scores in the back of the car. <laughs> so every now and again, we would see him taking a radio out of the wheel section of underneath the car 
um, listening to the cricket scores. And I remember thinking, am I supposed to denounce my father? But then in 1970, the leader of the exclusive Brethren was caught having an affair with a married woman in the cult. He tried to pass it off as the will of God, but the scandal drove Rebecca's family and many others to leave. Rebecca was just eight years old. She later described that transition to the outside world as like being lost in a town where all the signs had been changed into a language I didn't know. So I'm 56 now and I have nightmares still. I still sleepwalk sometimes. Um, I still have high levels of anxiety. But I would also say I've learned to live with them. Mm. I've learned to, God, this is going to sound very twee and a bit Pollyanna-ish, but I've learned to use it in my writing. Um, in terms of my imaginative world, I think as a small child, I spent a lot of time playing these strange... We didn't have books, so all of my games were from the Bible. And I suppose what I'm trying to say is that I have come to appreciate the ways in which that strange childhood, painful though it was, fearful though it was, actually produced some quite rich things too. Mm. Um, and that I am a unique person because of it. I have such a strong impulse to run. Hundred percent. Yeah, I'm always looking at like apartments in other cities and like <laughs> imagining myself going. Mm -hmm. It's to, it's that that. Well, we were always on the move too. Within a year, we'd move like six times. And to this day, that's a that's a it's a sensation that I kind of enjoy. I like the feeling of being on the go, but like I know it's rooted in that, so it's a bit dangerous. Yeah, and you have to, I mean, for me, I, I try to um, catch myself, you know, when I'm sitting late at night, like you, looking at other houses in other cities. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> yeah. I'm thinking, what, where is that coming what from? Am I you doing know, like, well, yeah. yeah, I'm looking for the place that's safe. And, you know, even this house, when I bought this house in Norwich, where I live now, one of the things I did, and I found myself doing it late at night, and when I realized what I was doing, I laughed out loud, I was checking for flood warnings. I suddenly realized it's like you've always bought houses on tops of hills because you're afraid of water level rise. Mm. And that's because you were raised to think that the tribulations will bring mass floodings. Right, right, yeah. <laughs> and the, my arc. <laughs> Rebecca, there's something you said earlier. So you as a kid became an expert really quickly at just being afraid. My nephew, I go and visit him sometimes. He's living with my parents and, and he's just learning about death, you know. And you have to have that conversation with the kid, like teach him what death is. And when kids start to be curious about things that really matter, you have the opportunity there as, as a caregiver. And in many ways, I'm a caregiver to my nephew because he's, he, was, you know, he was abandoned by his mother. She's out on the street and he's, he's kind of living with my, my family. And because of what I went through, I am so, so aware. What I say to him at this moment is going to affect him for the rest of his life. I remember what it's like being a kid and just being taught how to be afraid. And I don't, I don't have any children of my own yet, but when I do, I just know that because of what I went through, I'm going to make a, an awesome dad. And that's not a, that's not a humble brag. I just know, mm. I, I just know it, you know? Yeah, that's beautiful. <laughs> that's really beautiful. This brings us to our first insight. Try to find the good or at least the useful in an otherwise painful experience. Sometimes maybe that just means learning what not to say or do in the future. Of course, that's easier said than done. This kind of self-reckoning, 
it's even more complicated when you're trying to mend relationships in the process. How can you open up about a difficult experience with people you care about when you're still making sense of it yourself? We'll learn more after this quick break. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company & Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. On Death, Sex, and Money, we feature interviews with you, our community of listeners, getting honest about uncomfortable things. I developed an illness where it isn't safe for me to drive. A friend once said to me, sex is like air. You don't think about it until you're not getting enough. This is a similar sort of thing if you just replace sex with driving. Listen to Death, Sex, and Money wherever you get podcasts. We're back with Michael and our expert, Rebecca Stott. Even though Rebecca's family left the exclusive Brethren when she was relatively young, the fallout stretched on for decades as her father traded one obsession, the cult, for another, gambling. So he became addicted to roulette really, really quickly. So he went to prison when I was 16. Mm. Uh, He was arrested for forgery and embezzlement because... Is that related to gambling? Yeah, to to fund the gambling uh, habit. And yeah, he went to prison, um, but he never lost the gambling addiction. Michael has talked about not expecting to get any sort of perfect explanation, but wanting to hear some reasonable explanations. Was your decision to write a memoir part of that, like looking for the best explanations you could get? A very close friend of mine who's a, who was a writer just said, you keep telling this story in bits. What would it be like to tie it all together? And it might help you to understand the connections between things. So it also gave me a chance to step inside my father. I adored my father. I'm one of the most important people in my life. Um, an incredible, charismatic, eccentric, larger than life person who taught me so much about the world, but stole from me, you know, like did all kinds of terrible things in our family. Um, You mean literally stole from you? Yeah. But I managed to get into his head. I had to for the book. I had to understand what the world looked like for him. And it just released this kind of incredible compassion for him. But the more important thing was that I thought I was writing this book from my father. And one night, quite late on in the writing, I suddenly realized I was writing for my six-year-old self. I was Mm. writing for that geeky girl who just really wanted to understand things better. And I was talking to her. So, Michael, when you were talking earlier about how one of your skills now is that you can talk to children 
I was able to talk to the six-year-old self that I was. Yeah, I think that's a huge, huge part of the healing process, I think. Really, really useful. And because it, it, it gave me a chance to understand the men in the Brethren too. Like, you know, when I lay there as a six-year-old child, terrified, and my father didn't come and uh, make me feel safe again, it was because he didn't feel safe either. Here's our next insight. Inhabit someone else's perspective. The more you learn about how a loved one felt, the more you'll feel useful compassion for them. As Rebecca notes, that doesn't need to come at the cost of anger. You can be furious and compassionate at the same time. And while Rebecca's memoir helped her find a helpful connection with her father, her mother was another story. She did not want me to write the book. She just said, you will not write this. She was so terrified of the consequences of spilling the beans, as she called it. She accused me of narcissism. I mean, I've never seen her speak to me in that way. Um, So in the end, I just said to her, I'm going to do it. And she said, yes, I understand you need to do it. We will never speak of it again. Rebecca's book got glowing reviews, and it even won a prestigious award. But it was only a couple of months ago that her mother finally asked her for a copy, three years after it was published. And when I rang her six weeks ago, she said, I'm sorry, I can't talk. I'm reading your book. Mm. (laughs) And I literally did not know. I paced up and down in the kitchen. I did not know what to do. And when I rang her the following day, she said she had read it in a single day. She's 86 now. She had read it until two o'clock in the morning. She said if she could have not gone to the toilet, she would have not gone to the toilet. She didn't eat. She just read it. She devoured it. And she said, you've got every single part of this right. And she said to me, I'm sorry. Because in the book I describe like lying awake and being terrified. And she said, I never knew that. I would have come and comforted you if I'd known. I never knew. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah. uh, so there was a kind of an apology. And this this was like six weeks ago? Yeah. Wow. So, I mean, That's wild. you had... Obviously, you had come through this and had a whole life before this. We're talking about something so recent. That's that's kind of remarkable. Yeah. I have a question. Were your parents, were they born into it or did they, did they decide yeah. to enter it? So they never knew any other way of living. Wow. They were, both, See, they were both born into it. That's one that, for me, putting myself in their shoes, I can imagine the embarrassment of that decision being a choice. Yeah. I bet they went into it. With the best intentions. Totally, yeah. Like, it would be really interesting for them and for, for you to listen to them trying to articulate what hope they had for the life that they were about to choose. And maybe it would be useful for you to hear that from them, what they thought they were entering. Yeah, what sparked that curiosity and, yeah. Mm. Michael, you obviously, it seems to me, you obviously feel like the burden of, oh, I don't want to say burden, like you're sort of a glue, no, no, burden's the right word. And it, it, that burden kind of crippled me and it, and it, and it affected my relationships. Like um, especially a, a long-term romantic relationship was kind of cut asunder because of my uh, need to be around my family. Um, so I was all tore up mm-hmm. and I was, a, I was a mess and we had to part ways. Relationships take a lot of work even when everything with your own family is going great. Yeah. Um, and is that something that we, you think will, might continue to be a challenge for you, you know, as you 
you've you've talked about you've you've said things that imply to me that you want your own kids at some point. You know, absolutely. Uh, it, it's it's probably the biggest problem area is for me. I mean, so let me go back in time. Uh, my first friend, I remember his name. His name was Philip. He was a kid that was paired with me in the group, and he was my first close friend. All of a sudden, we're gone. I have no idea what happened to him. I don't know where he is, what he's doing with his life. I'm a kid, and that was my first like close relationship. And there was no, yeah. there was no conversation about, hey, we're leaving now. No, we're just gone. All of a sudden, gone. And that has, I think, that left a really strong imprint on my ability to form close relationships. There's always this fear of losing a friend, and and mm-hmm. I mean, it's that it's the it's the apocalyptic feeling. It's that feeling everything's going to go away. That manifests in personal relationships. So that is an area that I really want to improve on. Yeah. Oh, goodness. So interesting. I mean, I'm single now. Um, I've had, uh, I had an 11-year marriage. I've had some amazing relationships, amazing, important relationships. But I'm not in one now. I struggle with friendships for that reason, too. It's like, there's still a part of me that doesn't expect to be around very much longer and is surprised at how long I've been here anyway. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, I would also guess just thinking, you know, in a relationship, like when to disclose the, these very unusual things about your history. Exactly. Right? Like, oh, is, it, is it time to meet the parents? Yeah. Like, Bing, what, well, just, there's some things I have to tell you. you I was know? just going to say that. That's like my most <laughs> dreaded moment is to say I go on a date or something and eventually the conversation comes up. So where are you from? I, 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 I oh, I have to go to the restroom, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but in establishing relationships and maintaining relationships, it's still something I don't talk to about with some of my closest friends because I do feel embarrassed. Mm-hmm. And I know I shouldn't. I know I shouldn't, but I do. Yeah. I've spoken more to you two about it than I have to my closest friend. It's it's hard. It's hard for me. And it may be that now, once you've done this recording, and, you know, it'll be out there in in the world, that you might be able to, you know, signal to people that if they want to know a little bit more, that they can listen to you talking about it here. I think you're right. Yeah, one of my selfish hopes in doing this was that having this conversation with y'all would somehow open, I guess, the floodgates to having it with with other people. Here's our final insight. A single conversation with someone who understands your experience might lead to even more conversations. Rebecca's memoir melted her mom's 50 years of silence about the cult. It was a risk for Rebecca to write the book, but now the subject has become less taboo between her and her mom, and maybe more importantly, less taboo for Rebecca. One question I did have, I have my struggles, like I have lots of challenges, that I still face and deal with. But I feel like of my entire family, I've been the most proactive about deal, mm. dealing, dealing with it. But hearing you talk and hearing you express, I want to know some, some of the tools were that you used so that I can kind of at least nudge some people that I do care about mm. in my family. Yeah, oh goodness. So one of the things I learned, one of my children had a period of time suffering with an eating disorder and... I got incredibly anxious about her. I was reading everything, you know, like I was obsessed with finding a way to cure her slash fix her slash help her talk to her. You know, it was just like in my head all the time. Um, And her boyfriend took me aside, lovely young man. And he said to me, Rebecca, I've been reading about this condition and it's really important that we remember to walk alongside her. This is her walk. 
And oh my goodness, I understood the truth of that as soon as he articulated wow. it. I suppose that's what I would say to you is that you've got these wonderful siblings and they are all on their own walk. You can walk alongside them, but you can't, you can't heal them. Like they have to do that for themselves. Um, you have to let them go at their own pace and their own rate and you just walk alongside them. That's beautiful. Yeah. That's beautiful. Why did you tell me that five years ago? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it took a young a young 24-year-old man to tell me that, you know? It's <laughs> <Just> funny. <laughs> wow. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, now I'm I'm writing that on my whiteboard right now. <laughs> Can I just say that at the beginning of this when I was listening to you tell your story and my throat was like thickening up and I was like, "Oh, I'm not going to be able to speak." Well, my throat's clear now. Um <laughs> same same same. Yeah, yeah no. Uh, yeah, like we, we we did it. We you know, like if this is in our bodies, then our bodies also respond to to connection. Um yeah. I, I haven't sorted everything. I'll never sort everything, not in this life. Um but you know, oh, it's so precious to talk to someone who has gone through something similar and speaks a similar language. Really well said. Same. No, mm. I I I don't feel the shakes like I did in the beginning and yeah, it's it's been great. Thank you to Michael for sharing his story with us. And thanks to Rebecca Stott for her great advice. Be sure to look for her book, In the Days of Rain, A Daughter, A Father, A Cult. Do you have an unusual problem that needs solving? Send us a note at howto at slate.com or leave us a voicemail at 646-495-4001. And if you like what you heard today, please leave a rating and a review. It helps us help more listeners. How To's executive producer is Derek John. Rachel Allen and Rosemary Belson produced the show. Our theme music is by Hannes Brown, remixed by Merritt Jacob, our technical director. Charles Duhigg is our host emeritus. I'm David Epstein. See you next time.